Information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning and welcome to our inaugural Blue Crew Medicine Podcast. I'm here today with our good friend Joe Doe, a.k.a. Dr. Joseph Doherty, who is an assistant professor in the emergency medicine department here at UMC, along with the board certified and critical care intensivist here in our critical care tower. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, we are also joined by Dr. Taylor Walks, who is currently a PGY3 EM resident here at EMC. Uh, good to have you, buddy. Thanks, man. Um, we're coming to you live from the uh, Mississippi Center for Emergency Services, or MCES building, here on UMC's main campus. Um, I'm your host today, Will Appleby, uh, one of the critical care paramedics with Air Care. So let's get started. Today, we want to talk a little bit about the uh, big, bad, often slobbery angioedema. All right. Uh, real quick, just so everybody's on the same page, angioedema is defined as local swelling of the skin or mucosal tissues, which is from extravasation of fluid into the interstitium due to a loss of vascular integrity. Um, it can occur alone or as part of anaphylaxis, uh, otherwise known as allergic reactions. Today, I want to talk a little bit about patho, uh, how it comes about, uh, so we can do right by our patients. Uh, what bothers us in emergency medicine? Some tips and tricks to help us along the way as well. Um, so when y'all think about angioedema, what comes to your mind first off? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, something not to be taken lightly. Uh, I think that uh, anytime we're talking about airway, I think for the most part, uh, pre-hospital care and emergency care, uh, is that's something that comes first to mind. But um, this is something that first thing I think of is don't take it lightly. I agree with Dr. Walks. A lot of what I think about with this too is that there can be a huge uh, range of presentations. It can vary from someone having a little lip swelling to some of the worst airways that, you ever, that you'll ever see. Um, so what, speaking of that, what does it look like to you? What's, what's the worst case scenario? When you walk up on somebody or somebody walks into the ER, what's the worst case thing you've ever seen? What, makes you really, really nervous when you walk in? I think um, one of the things that, that really changes the game for me is, is how prepared you are. Um, and so, you know, having a, a little bit of heads up to get stuff ready, I think, makes the world of difference. And so I think some of the worst cases of this that I've seen are, are patients that, that we really weren't prepared for. Um, and some of that um, is on us um, to, to make sure we're prepared. Uh, but that's, you know, kind of Melding with the pre-hospital care, uh, one of the most important things to kind of jump to is, is, is helping everyone that's going to be involved be aware of, of like Joe said, you know, the, the severity of the case. A lot of the time it's hard to tell the severity of the case up front. Someone may come in with pretty impressive facial swelling, but it's difficult to tell up front how much posterior uh, pharyngeal swelling they have. It's what we, what we really care about in terms of airway compromise. Yeah, it's one of those things you never know what you're going to walk into. A lot of times, walking on an ambulance, there's a first responder. You call for an allergic reaction to somebody's house, and you're like, oh, okay, we're just, you know, somebody got stung by a bee or a wasp or nothing nothing too serious. You walk up, and they're coming at you, and their tongue's poking out of your mouth, and they they're, literally they can't talk. Um, trying to get yourself up front mindset of, okay, what next? What do we got to do now? Um, 
something I have come to find over the years that really makes a difference in how we treat them and how you get yourself prepared is figuring out the patient history or what you can find out about a patient history. So what questions you can ask can make a world of difference in definitively what we actually do for these patients. So simple things like you changed your meds. Um, <laughs> how often is that? Uh, yeah, well, I just came off of Ace and Edward Bell Sunpril, or yeah, they put me on this new medicine, ends in like Pril or something, you know, something weird comes up. How often does that happen? I mean, like, it seems like all the time. Every yeah, other one yeah. come to. Yeah, just the general taking a patient history, the usual questions, you know, what's changed recently? Has this ever happened before? Um, from a pre hospital standpoint, you might have the chance to ask the questions, and by the time they get to us in the emergency department, they're doing worse to the point that they that they can't talk. So having that information early on is very helpful to us. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, you talk about about medications and things like that. Um, and I was doing a little bit of reading before this, and I think, like you said, we've we've all had that case of the patient they got just got started on an ACE inhibitor. But where this even gets more complicated is I was reading up to 40% of cases people can have been on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB for months to years, right? So that's where it really can get tricky where maybe they had something to eat that was different than normal. They went to a seafood restaurant, but they're also on an ACE inhibitor, but they've been on it for three years and have never had any problems. And I think that kind of gets to what we talked about is this is, this is not always just super straightforward. And that like you read a textbook and they'll tell you, okay, well, if they've got hives and they're itchy everywhere, it's anaphylaxis. I won't say that's always the case, but okay, yeah, it's a high index of suspicion. I'm really thinking it's that route, but like you said, you never know which way really to go. Um, so there's two uh, two big things we when we think of angiodema. We think about mast cell mediated, which is our typical allergic reaction, anaphylaxis stuff, and then there's bradykinin mediated. All right. Um, both these have different treatment pathways, different things we think of, different things we want to do first. Um, when you think about mast cell mediated, what does that mean to you guys? What, do you, what, what comes to mind as far as treatment pathway? It's the classic, you know, giving epinephrine, giving steroids, uh, giving antihistamines. Um, and you may think that something is non-mast cell inhibitor induced, but the allergic mast cell induced uh, angioedema is something you never want to miss because we have we have good treatment options for that. We have well-established treatment options for and that. It's easy. Yes. they're super easy. Yes, right, and everywhere should have all every all. every ambulance yeah. has epinephrine. You know, and I think you know. Obviously, we'll kind of dive into a little bit of, of how. You know, this this may be a really mixed picture. And in my opinion, just kind of off the bat, um, give these. If there is a thought in your mind that this is uh, mast cell mediated or, or you're unsure, I still think that the first line therapy is to give these medicines. Because if that is what it is, you're really, I think, doing a harm to the patient by not giving this a shot, um, you know, along with, with airway management, et cetera. But um you know, I feel like we get so uh, dived into some of the stuff we're going to talk about, about all the cool things we can try for bradykinin-induced. But I don't know. I feel like sometimes that gets overlooked of just do the things that we know work for if, you, if you're unsure. Epi's cheap, right? So, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's easy. little Epi, a little Benadryl. Yeah. It goes a whole long way. So when you think about it 
from, all right, we're going to give a few drugs, something I think a lot of people have struggled with is you, okay, I give them something, it doesn't fix it. Okay, you got to reassess, constantly reassess, look for the subtle changes in patients. Something that um, a lot of people kind of overlook is just simply watching someone and watching how they breathe. Watching what they're using next. Mm-hmm. Are they using? Are they progressing down that road? What is something that y'all think of when you? What's a what's a subtle cue or a little trick you think of when you're talking about watching somebody breathe? How, what makes you think they're progressing, or what makes you think they're getting better? You ask them. Um, it, a lot of it's going back into the room on a fairly frequent basis. Ask them. You know, do you feel like you're getting worse? Have the same provider in the room each time to assess. Um, and then I'll usually ask the patient, how does it, how does your throat feel? Does it feel like you're having trouble breathing? Does it feel like you're having trouble swallowing? Because they will typically be able to tell you if it feels like their throat's closing up, if it feels like they're getting worse before you can actually see visually. Yeah. And I think Joe, you know, the head on the nail there. I mean, I think you just have to trust with the patient when, when you're asking them, um, because a lot of times, you know, maybe in the emergency department, uh, if there's time, you know, you, we have some fancy tools, we can do looks and things, but especially in the pre-hospital setting, I mean, I think you have to, to go with, with your, your gut feeling and, and, and what you're getting as a feeling from the patient and how they're doing. And it's like you, you get to some, some patients you're going to come up on and they're, you know, their trunk's moving out and their head bobbing, they're really working to breathe. Those are the ones I'm sitting there going, oh boy, this is a bad day. Yeah. We're, we have a real bad problem. Um, and you start seeing some of those, you're breathing a little bit harder, they're using their breathing, you start seeing accessory muscle use, it's like, okay, I've got a minute. Like, I've got, I've got a little bit of time, but this is a problem. we got to really work on it. Just those subtle subtle little cues, and like you said, using the same person to go back and make sure you get the same kind of view. Um, if you got a really good picture looking in front of the patient, take two seconds, get in front of the patient. Don't try to look up on the side. Give you those subtle cues of what makes it different this time. And handoffs come important there. The pre-hospital provider handing off to the hospital or one shift in the hospital handing off to another. I know when I'm signing out an angioedema patient, I go with the physician who's taking over from me and be like, this is what it looks like. This is how it's looked. We both examine the patient at the same time, get on the same page so that the next person knows if something's changing. I think it's super important at any level. I mean, like whether it's you're a first responder or paramedic, flight crew or whatever you are that day, Walking up with the next person and say, hey, look, this is what I saw. This is what's changed. This is what's better. This is what's worse. This is the subtle little things I picked up on. Or you can tell they're like, I had a patient a while back that was very fidgety. Mm-hmm. And the fidgeting got worse. And that was more of my clue of, all right, this is what we're doing is not getting better. It wasn't just the epi tingles. It was, hey, this isn't, something's not right. Well, I think, like you said, that kind of goes to not only, you know, especially as ER providers, do we have to trust kind of what the patients are saying? We have to trust our, our pre-hospital care providers. You know, um, if your gut feeling when you're bringing a patient to me is that it's gotten worse in your transport time, no matter how short or long that is, um, a lot of times that that may be the only only thing you can use at that time to make a decision. Uh, and especially from a hospital perspective, it's important as a physician, it's important to get your nurses involved there too, because they're going to be looking at the patient way more frequently than you are. Um, and they can, if they notice something small, they'll come and get you. It's, I think in some ways a lot easier as a pre-hospital provider because you're sitting there one-on-one with the patient during transport. And it's your sole, sole opportunity. Yes. 
you don't have half a dozen other sick patients in the ED that are taking your time as well. That's right. Um, so let's get down to a little scenario. So for that patient that comes in and said, I tried lamb for the first time about a couple hours ago, has an itchy throat, hives everywhere. Um, run me through what y'all prioritize and what actions you'll take to take care of that patient. So it's a, that's about as clear cut a, a allergic angioedema as you get. Um, and so anaphylaxis is a, um, it's a, you have two or more systems involved in an allergy. Um, in this patient, shortness of breath, skin involvement. First line there is epinephrine. Um, so epinephrine is the first thing I'm asking for. Um, standard at this point is 0.5 milligrams intramuscularly um, in a big muscle group. Um, and that's, the, that's going to be your number one priority is getting epi on board. And a lot of people are scared to pull that trigger. Oh, I'll give it epi. It's, you know, it's increased their heart rate. It makes them feel good. Yeah, okay. It's, I get that. But it's, like I said, it's super easy. you got a lot of it. Every ambulance has got it. Um, most first responders carry it in the kit, a little epi pen or something. That's great. It's a great tool. Works. Yeah. Well, and I think too at that point, and something that you know a lot of times we forget about is ER providers is we get so concerned about the airway, but uh, just put the patient on the monitor, right? I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but uh, just for pre-hospital uh, care providers and ER providers as well, put the patient on the monitor. If you give someone epi, right, we understand that there there could be complications with that, but just have the patient on the monitor. Um, I feel like you know can yeah. can get you out of a lot of trouble. Um, versus giving someone epinephrine and realizing 10 minutes later um, they're super diaphoretic and don't look so good, and you put them on the monitor and their heart rate's 190. Um, so, I don't know. Sounds simple, but uh, probably probably an easy step to, to save yourself there a little bit. When we're taking emergency medicine boards, first thing they teach us with every patient is IVO2 monitor, first thing when you walk in the room. Same thing in EMS all day long. Uh, pretty sure it's on every NRE2 checkoff to this day. So that's a Standard, like we said, mast cell mediated anaphylaxis, the basic scenario. Now let's let's change it a little bit. So patient significant other. Okay, they they said, well, they just changed their medicines. Patient can't talk. Tongue's protruding out of their mouth. So they went to the doctor last week. Uh, put them on a new blood pressure pill. I mean, what's what do y'all think about that? What's your what's your actions? I think that this is where a whole can of worms can really be opened up. Uh, but I still think, um, you know, the, the situation you've kind of presented seems to be more of a straightforward, probably uh, non-mast cell mediated, more of a bradykinin mediated. But I still think, you know, your first go-to is still, if, if it's a thought in your mind that this is due to something that's not medication um, or bradykinin induced, is to still do epinephrine. Um, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Some people may agree, uh, disagree, but you're not going to hurt anybody with epinephrine if you're really concerned that that's a possibility. So I think that's first off. Um, and then you kind of open up a can of worms about a lot of stuff that's been looked at um, and and a lot of it not looked at super well because it's just, it's not going to be able to be looked at super well. Um, um, and I think the other thing too to, to kind of think about is a lot of times um, this bradykinin mediated angioedema tends to maybe be a little more slow developing. Um, it's not always the case. Some of that's anecdotal. But that may also give you kind of a tip off. And a lot of times I feel like in my uh, short experience, the mast cell mediated angioedemas progress rapidly. Whereas you almost have to be more careful with the bradykinins because they can slowly sneak up on you um, and get worse over 
hours, not just, hey, they're, they're, they're swollen. It's not going to get worse than this. Uh, again, not always the case, but it can yeah. make it more challenging. I agree with Taylor. Uh, allergic angioedema is usually there's a pretty clear cut uh, trigger. Um, you know, I was eating peanuts and started having lip swelling and shortness of breath. Um, and it develops quickly uh, most of the time. And then with the proper treatment, it also resolves quickly in a matter of minutes to hours. Whereas uh, bradykinin-mediated angioedema, it develops a little slower and then it resolves slower as well. So, like, when you say slower, like, what are we talking? Are we talking, like, a uh, day, a couple of days, yeah, hours? Um, I'm So, with bradykinin-mediated angioedema and the majority of what we see is ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, but there are other causes that we'll talk about a little later. Um, sometimes I'm discharging these patients from the ED, but usually that's been, it's very minor symptoms that have been present for, it's not unusual to have patients who come in like, my lip has been swollen for the last 12 hours, um, and I watch them for a few hours, and it may be slowly improving, but just long enough to make sure that I'm confident that it's not worsening. So it's, you know, a several hour process at the very least. That reassessment progression. Yes. Yes. That can progress too. I mean, Joe can speak to this in the ICU. People may be intubated for day or days. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's knock out the elephant in the room. Lately, coming out a lot of, a lot of studies and a lot of data coming out about transient, transient acid, TXA. Um, especially with these patients. What else thoughts? I think it's promising. I think it makes sense from a uh, physiologic, pharmacologic standpoint. There's not what we refer to as high-level evidence for it. There are no large trials, randomized controlled trials on uh, on TXA in, uh, in bradypanin-mediated angioedema. Well, I think two words come to mind for me when you think about it, cheap and safe. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like epinephrine, right? I mean, it's cheap. Everybody has it for the most part that I know of. Everybody has TXA. It's uh, relatively safe. Um, so to me, uh, Joe and I were kind of talking before, I think it's probably first line to give it a shot. You know, we're, we're talking about maybe you feel confident it's Brady kind of mediated. We, we're, we're past the epinephrine, you know, mast cell uh, management. Um, it's kind of your first, at least my first go-to. Um if nothing else other than um, I don't think there's evident, great evidence for something that's much better combined with the fact that it's cheap and safe. Well, it's like you said, it's on pretty much, I won't say every animal that's around here, but it's mm-hmm. it's on most EMS 911 trucks now. I mean, you can give some epi, you can give solumedrol if you've got it, you've got Benadryl, everybody's got epi and Benadryl. Cool, mm-hmm. it works, it doesn't work, you give it, you got a 30-minute transport time, and that first 15, 20 minutes nothing's changing with the TXA may be a viable option. At least yep. if it doesn't stop it, it may slow down the process. All right, this is starting to become an airway possible complication or an airway issue. Yeah, I agree. It's my first line. I've, I've become pretty liberal about giving it if I'm suspecting bradykinin-mediated angioedema. Will, when y'all, when y'all give this um, pre-hospital, are you giving a gram over 10 minutes? Is that, yeah, that kind of what your protocol? Same stuff. We do crash too, just kind of like you said, there's not a whole lot of data out there. Right. It's easy to call for remote control and just say, hey, look, I think this is what it is. Give a gram pretty quick and that kind of, all right, cool, that's done. We're one, one and done. Um, 
So that's pretty much the ACE inhibitor stuff. Mm-hmm. Talk about plasma a little bit. It's not always available. We carry it on airframes, but in a lot of small hospitals in Mississippi, it's not even an option. Especially with the blood shortage these days, you can't get it. Do you think it's a priority to go ahead and try to find it? Or thaw plasma as soon as somebody walks through the door with angioedema, they may only have one unit FFP in the hospital. Is it something you guys think you can consider, like, go ahead and get them on, on the way? I do. The main thing I do with all these patients that walk through the door is just go ahead and get a type and screen so that I have that ready if I am thinking about giving FFP. And in I do like to give it in the severe angioedema patients, the ones that I'm concerned, am I moving towards intubation in these patients? So and you're doing this on top of TXA. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, this is this is not something you're trying TXA, waiting a half hour, unless you think it's progressing. I mean, this is, like Joe said, I'm using it in the super sick, progressive patient, and, it, and it's kind of being done pretty quickly. And I think that's a little more reasonable um, in hospitals that maybe have emergent release, that you don't have to wait as long for a fall time uh, or have it at all. Um, I know with our, you know, our air care service, y'all carry it. But again, some of these small hospitals that I've worked at as well, they don't have any blood. I mean, they don't have PRVCs, much less yeah. FFP. So um, for some of some of our listeners, that, that may not even be an option for you. I'm giving TXA and pretty much anyone that I'm suspecting bradycutin-mediated angioedema, um, even just some lip swelling. I'll I'll discuss it with the patient, but I would I uh, lean towards giving it. And then in the more severe ones, I give FFP. Um, I'm not giving FFP in all of these just because there are side effects to FFP. You can get um, trolley uh, transfusion related acute lung injury. Um, it's it's a blood product, so blood products have become very safe, but there are still risks to it. It's still it's still one of those things, once you see a blood reaction once, it's like, okay, that's in my head. I believe that this is not a benign thing anymore. This is, this is real. Well, and there's a volume associated with FFP too, right? You're given two units, which, you know, 500 cc's or so, mm-hmm. which, but you also got to think, right, which of our patients are on ACE inhibitors, right? These heart failure patients yeah. who have terrible injection fractions who you're, you're you know, it's not benign, failure, yeah. like Joe said, to give them a 500 cc's pretty quickly. Um, so I think a lot of that takes into account, you know, whether you're going to use FFP or not. One more little little deal is the hereditary or acquired angioedema. So actually more common down here than we thought. Um, I never knew it until actually I started with Eric here, how common hereditary angioedema is yeah. in Mississippi. <laughs> um, but it, it's pretty common. for usually found out when they're kids, somewhere in teenagers or young school age. Um have y'all ever seen it? Yeah, I see it probably a couple times a year. We have several patients um, who come in on a decently regular basis, um, and it's not just it's not just airway swelling. Um, there's a whole spectrum. Uh, we have a couple patients who come in with uh, mainly intestinal angioedema um, and wind up getting uh, C1S3 inhibitor Baronert. Um, they pretty much always get admitted. These these are the patients that they know what they have and they know what's going on. Um, I remember a patient from a couple years ago who came in with airway swelling. He had been intubated 25 times before for his hereditary angioedema. That's impressive. He didn't make it to number 26. He wound up with a trach. Oh, man. Well, and I think, like I said, the, the benefit to these patients can be, you know, assuming this isn't their initial presentation, like you said, and, and, and maybe your 10-year-old, but these patients are usually pretty reliable about telling you, hey, 
I'm, I'm okay or I'm not okay. The, the more often it happens, um, we talked about earlier, you know, trusting what you're paying. You can really trust these patients in my experience. They know. The cool thing to me is that they usually have their own. Like yeah. they have their own C1S trace with them and they'll say, yeah, I, I got it once. It's not doing nothing. That one of the last ones I saw in the ER a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um, that came in, lives locally, came in, said, hey, look, this, I already did my own stuff. This ain't, this ain't working. We got to, come on, give me some more. And that's, that's important for some of our smaller hospitals because very few hospitals um, in Mississippi are going to have Baronert on hand. So if the patient, if the patient brings in their own, that's going to be, that's going to be critical. I mean, I think, you know, I think if they don't, at that point, focus on the airway, right? I mean, that, that's really the only thing, one of the only things to, to really offer um, some of these patients. And, and I think Joe made a really good point. Do not be hesitant to let someone take their own medicine if they have it with them. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes in the hospital, we, we just get in this idea of we're a hospital. You can't take your own medicines in the hospital. Um, I, I would 100% let them use their own medicine. Um, especially that. Especially that, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, it's even hard for us. We've got to go to Central Pharmacy pull. I mean, it's a, it's a rapid pull. We've got a, we've got a whole program worked out for it, but it's, it's still like, hey, this is not a drug we give every day. Um, I can't even tell you the number offhand in the last 10 years, how many times we do it. It's not a lot. Right. Very few compared yeah. to most of the stuff we carry. Guys, appreciate you coming today. Thanks for uh, participating. Good combo. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.